Gina was working towards a career change. As a longtime educator, she was making the leap into administration. As part of her degree requirements, she had to finish her research project. Her deadline was a few months away. Really, she had adequate time, but she was also painfully aware that she knew about this work for the past six months and just couldn't get going. Every time she thought about starting to work on the project, she felt overwhelmed by all the remaining work, and worse, she felt shame about how she had put it off. Why did I do this? Why didn't I start earlier? I'm such an idiot. The anxiety these thoughts produced was enough to send her spiraling. Next thing you know, she is driving to the store to get some binge food. She told herself, I don't care. Jessica had a busy adolescent psychiatry practice. Her days were long as she met with many patients. The paperwork required was substantial. During the rare lulls in her clinical work, she knew that she'd better get caught up on her case reports. She had also learned from medical school that you just have to push through it. If you have eight hours, then by God, you better get eight hours of work done. Doctors don't take breaks. Doctors don't need sleep. Doctors don't need rest. Just get it done. Jessica noticed that her harsh inner dialogue was like a jailer, and she was imprisoned and sentenced to hard labor. With no allowed breaks, she found herself grabbing snacks in the hospital kitchen. Eating was one way she could numb the bad feelings. And lastly, Karen was an experienced, well-respected attorney. It wasn't so much her caseload or the sometimes challenging clients that upset her. Rather, it was the weekly tyranny of the timesheets. In order to get paid, Karen had to submit detailed reports of every minute, of every day, of every week, 52 weeks a year, year after year. Ugh. Why do I have to do this? This is ridiculous, she thought. She felt the annoyance of being forced to do such a seemingly meaningless task. This resentment led her to avoid the daily upkeep. She waited each week until the sheets were due. Days after the fact, she found it difficult to capture all of her time. It was so frustrating. Next thing you know, she was breaking out a bowl of candy. She found she could snack her way through all of the discomfort. So I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel some anxiety just recounting these stories. It's interesting that the issues surrounding time management and energy management often come up in our coaching. When we are not respecting our own human needs, one way it can manifest is in our out-of-control eating episodes. Something has to give. Do you ever find yourself procrastinating, or rather, procrastinating? Some sort of anxiety-producing task is hanging over your head, and the next thing you know, you're staring into the pantry. Let's unpack this in today's episode. This is the Breaking Up with Binge Eating Podcast, where every listen moves you one step closer to complete food freedom. Hosted by me, Georgie Fear, and my co-coach, Mary Claire Brescia. One of the first challenges when it comes to avoiding work and procrastinating is the difficulty getting started. David Kane, in his blog on raptitude.com, describes it as, The problem starts when you know what you need to do, but you balk on doing it. It grows in that space between the knowing and the doing. 
The anxiety, shame, and fear associated with the task rise as long as you live in that space. Nothing else happens in this phase except for your own suffering and aging. We call it the unproductive phase. The longer this phase goes on, the more anxiety it generates and the harder the task itself appears to be. At some point, often spurred by a crisis of some kind, you start actually to do the thing you're supposed to do. It's here where the anxiety usually spikes. You're entering the productive phase, where failure, embarrassment, and the discovery of your own incompetence go from being future-dwelling specters to real-time dangers. That's why procrastinators avoid ever getting to this part. But it doesn't last long. You begin to realize that the task, like all tasks you will ever need to do, is finite and consists only of small, ordinary actions like Googling things, talking to people, reading, writing, sketching, printing, and cleaning up. The task begins to look patently doable. Your sense of capability swells, and the fear recedes. This phase takes less and less willpower and courage as it goes on, until the task is in your past and the life cycle ends. I'm sure we can all relate to this. When we contemplate doing our taxes or writing a podcast script, true story, the anxiety is all front-loaded. We just need to start. So how do we do it? David also shares his strategy called the Right Now List. He says, Whenever I'm anything less than completely enthusiastic about getting to work, which is almost always, I put a square yellow sticky note in the corner of my desk and write RNL at the top. This stands for Right Now List. A Right Now List is a short list of the first two or three things I need to do right now, not eventually, but at the absolute beginning of the task I'm currently trying or hoping to do. The key is that the items on the Right Now List are so tiny and easy that even a masterful procrastinator won't talk himself out of doing them. Things like open Microsoft Word, find the document I was working on yesterday, and number three, Scroll down to where I left off. These tasks are too easy to trigger the procrastinator's mind's usual objections. That familiar, weaselly inner voice that goes, so, uh, do I truly need to do this right now? RNL tasks are such easy and immediate wins that it's more tempting to do them than to make sheepish arguments to yourself about why you should do them later. This is genius. Find more of David's work on being a better human at raptitude.com. I'm a big fan. On a personal note, last month I was trying to complete an online course and take the final test to get my course credit. And the noise in my head was deafening. Why didn't you finish this last month? You could have gotten this done before we went away on vacation. Now we're back and you don't even remember the stuff from beforehand. What if I don't pass the test? What if I screw this up? What a waste of money. With thoughts like these, it's no wonder that I found myself avoiding the entire enterprise. Then I read about the right now list, and I thought to myself, what would be the three steps to get started? The first thing I needed to do was open up the portal for the class on my computer. Step two was to bring up the course outline. And step three was to be sure I had all the printouts of all the materials by chapter. So as you can see, none of these tasks were particularly challenging. I had to open up a window, I had to print some papers, I had to check some things off. It was no big deal, and really, that's all it took to get over the hump. Once I did that, I realized I was quite prepared to take the test, and it was no big deal. Crisis averted. 
So lesson one today is to just get started. Make a right now list. What else might send us straight to the store to buy snack food? Well, what about long, tedious tasks? How do you commit to working on them for hours at a time? Jessica had many hours worth of case reports to write. Another client, Danielle, had to plow through chapter upon chapter of book edits. How do you keep going when there is no end in sight? One classic technique you may be well aware of is the Pomodoro method. For those who are unfamiliar, I will give a quick summary. I'm sure many of you have seen a classic egg timer. You know, the one that goes tick, 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 tick. It may even be in the shape of an egg. Well, in Italy, the egg timer is actually in the shape of a tomato or a pomodoro. When using the Pomodoro method, you're using the timer to break your work up into shorter segments, punctuated by breaks. What breaks? Who takes breaks? The idea is to work for 25 minutes and then take a five-minute break. You do this for four cycles, and then you take a longer break. Sounds so simple, right? But there is something magical about telling yourself that you will have a break and you're not sentenced to work consecutively for hours on end. It recognizes that our attention span has limits, and even a five-minute break can be quite restorative. If you're wearing a Fitbit or have an Apple Watch or some other smartwatch, your timer is right on your wrist. Don't underestimate the power of this simple technique. Lastly, another aspect we should consider is how we feel as we go through our day. Many of us move from segment to segment just reacting to whatever is presented to us. If someone is nice to us, we feel good. If someone runs up our heels with their shopping cart, we feel annoyed. If we are doing a boring task, we just want to escape. There is an alternative to that. We do have some capability to proactively set an intention for how we want to feel while we are doing something. We can be in a much more powerful place when we are creating our emotional state through our own focus as opposed to being buffeted by our random thoughts and outside of events. One can imagine that various tasks or activities really lend themselves to particular emotional states. If you were doing some sort of accounting work, like a tax return or a budget, you might think that it would be best to feel calm, meticulous, careful. If you're helping your kids with their homework, you could aim for a different sort of energy, such as being present, not distracted, accepting. For example, I asked Jessica, the psychiatrist, about the overwhelming case reports. Were they important? Did they matter? As I watched her ponder this question, her whole posture changed. She sat up straight. She looked me right in the eyes and told me, yes, these reports were the foundation for the work going forward to fully support this patient. I said, what would you like these reports to represent? She said that she wanted the patient to feel like they were fully seen, that they were understood, that the report captured all of that. So it sounded to me that this report, which could have been viewed as an annoying administrative task, was really an act of love and caring. Working on them could be an inspired effort. You see, if we can tie our work to our personal sense of purpose, the work itself comes from a good place. It's less onerous and perhaps even less tiring. She wouldn't be conflicted while she was writing the reports. She could, in fact, feel good about her work. And if you allow yourself to actually feel good about what you're doing, the allure of the hospital kitchen will be far less.
Brendan Burchard, in his book, High Performance Habits, talks about this very practice. He talks about determining the feeling you're after. Don't wait for emotions to land on you. For each activity in your day, choose and cultivate the feelings you wish to express. Also, connect your work to your values. How can I make this work more personally meaningful to me? For example, if you're picking up abandoned socks and shoes around the house, it can feel more fulfilling if you recognize your effort is contributing to creating a warm and welcoming home. If you're paying the monthly bills, you can acknowledge that you're fostering good management and financial stewardship for your household. If you're writing case reports, it will feel less like drudgery if you remind yourself of the value of these reports for your patient's ongoing care. If you're finishing a research project for your new career as school principal, you can fully recognize the importance of the subject matter and how it will affect real children and their school experience. So before you begin something, ask yourself, what energy do I want to bring to this action? How can I make this task more personally meaningful to me? Try to come up with three feeling words. Conjure up those feelings as you proceed. So hopefully today, we've given you some new tools to sidestep avoiding certain tasks and the bad feelings that ensue, right? Avoiding binge eating is not just about not eating. How about we find ways to make our days work better for us? We can find ways to feel more productive and less needing to numb out. So, one, if you're avoiding work, find a way to take the first steps. Try the right now list. Two. If you feel overwhelmed by a lengthy task, use the Pomodoro method. Break it down into smaller steps. Take breaks. Set the timer. And three, lastly, proactively set your intention for the energy you will bring to a task. Make it personally meaningful. Feel good about what you're doing. So, maybe think about the activities or work that's giving you some anxiety. Which of these techniques discussed today might be helpful? Make a plan to try it out. Remember, we don't learn new behaviors from listening to podcasts. We learn from our personal experience. So give it a go.